0: Snuff Production. In this episode of The Briefing, you'll hear an Indigenous American man speak the Yuchi language.
1: I'm greeting you in the Yuchi language, the language of my grandmother that she only learned in boarding school when she was uh, in her teens. Good to hear you all. I'm giving you greetings.
0: That's Dr. Richard Grounds, who's been in Central Australia sharing his methods for saving American languages. So could it help us save the endangered languages here in Australia?
1: The goal is not to get a smattering of language to a lot of people, but to get the fullness of the heritage into a few apprentices who themselves can then become the cultural bearers to carry that language forward to the next generations
0: saving Indigenous languages. That's our briefing in the second half of this episode. It's Friday, August the 19th, and I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick for today's headlines.
2: A bomb maker who made the explosives used in the 2002 Bali terror attacks is set to walk free from prison in days, serving just half of his original sentence.
0: Umar Patek assembled the explosives that ripped through Bali's Sari Club and Paddy's Irish bar, killing 202 people, including 88 Australians. Now, it took nine years to actually track him down and then arrest him and sentence him. He travelled through the Philippines and Pakistan, and at one point was one of Asia's most wanted terror suspects.
2: Yeah, Patek was sentenced to 20 years in jail in Indonesia in 2012, but has only served 10 of those. And he's been granted an early release for good behaviour as part of Indonesia's Independence Day, and it comes just two months before the 20th anniversary of those bombings in October.
0: Yeah I think this will be devastating news for the families of the victims and you know call me a crazy western person but when you compare this sentence to the death sentences for two Australian men for trafficking drugs it just seems extraordinarily unfair.
2: There's been another drop in the unemployment rate falling 0.1 of a percent last month to 3.4, but wage growth is still sluggish.
0: Yes, yeah, stats from the ABS show wages are falling behind the current 6.1% inflation rate and increasing at just 1.9% in the 12 months ending May. So this is a massive problem, people going back on their wages in real terms. And the Employment Minister, Tony Burke, has said there are structural problems in the industrial relations system that means very low unemployment is failing to deliver wage increases.
2: So effectively, the the hydraulic pressure of unemployment being low, putting upward pressure on wages, that pressure's still there. But we now, it's coming through in pipes that have all sorts of leaks coming out of them.
0: Do that metaphor work for you, Rihanna? No. <laughs> Look, Labor campaigned pretty hard on higher wages in the election campaign. And when I heard it at the time, I thought, well... You don't really control wages, you know. I mean, you do in the Federal Public Service, but that's about it. Wages get set by bosses and the Fair Work Commission. So it was always going to be a tricky promise for Labor to deliver
2: on. Yeah, and I think if you were hoping for a pay rise to keep up with inflation, this is probably not the time to ask for it after this news.
0: And Scott Morrison has finally called Karen Andrews to apologise for swearing himself into her Home Affairs portfolio.
2: Yeah, Andrews had called for Morrison to resign earlier this week, and funnily enough, calling her to apologise was one of the last ministers he got around to calling.
0: Yeah, well, she'd been the strongest critic. Apparently, she's accepted his apology. There'll be more to come on this story, because the Solicitor-General's report will come out early next week about the legality of what Morrison did, and the Greens are pushing for a parliamentary probe into the appointments. Um, I did note that Criticism from the Nationals is starting to stiffen up a bit with Bridget McKenzie saying that the takeover of the resources portfolio showed complete disrespect for the Nationals and breached the Nationals Liberal Party coalition agreement.
3: To have authority transferred um, in this way uh, and to remain secret from Cabinet and from indeed the very ministers themselves, I think has been quite a shocking revelation to us all.
0: Yeah, and that interview went on and she used some very strong language and I've noticed, Rihanna, that with Bridget McKenzie and Karen Andrews being the only people to really call Morrison out from this properly on his own side, that it's only the women that are speaking up.
2: Yeah, and I think good on them too. I mean if you can't keep your party honest, who can you keep honest?
0: Yeah, it's like all the coalition, you know, boys' club has gone weak at the knees on this one.
2: New COVID cases have dropped by nearly a quarter around the world last week, while deaths fell 6% as the latest wave begins to ease, according to the World Health Organization.
0: Yeah, so infections fell even further in Africa and Europe, falling 40%, and down by a third in the Middle East. So it's good news. Corona deaths had been going up in the last month. Um, They'd surged 35%, but in the last week, they're trending downwards. Um, That's almost everywhere except Asia. So mostly good news there, which is um, a good place to leave the headlines for this Friday. Rihanna. look forward to catching you next week. Uh, I'm about to look into a really interesting story about Indigenous languages. So the latest census found there are 167 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages still spoken in homes across Australia. But as many as 110 languages are endangered. So will the master-apprentice technique that's been working in America work here? Dr. Richard Grounds is a highly respected language expert from the Uche Nation in what's now known as the State of Oklahoma. Earlier this month, he spoke at a four-day conference in Alice Springs, attended by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities from right across Australia. Richard, thanks for speaking to the briefing. Tell us about the work you've been doing in America to revive Indigenous languages there.
1: Well, I've been working to kind of overcome the big gap in the, the history and in the funding Uh, For our indigenous languages, you know, when I went to graduate school, I actually was able to, because I was a good student, I was able to acquire funding to support me in my graduate studies. I passed graduate proficiency exams in German language, in French language, in Hebrew language, (laughs) in Greek. But, you know, there was no funding support to study the language of my grandmother. So I have been on a quest since then to uh, revive our indigenous languages, along with many other supporters and, and activists around the indigenous world and elevate the importance and urgency of keeping alive our indigenous languages because Our languages are the key to all the rich thousands of years old knowledge about how to live on this earth in all the specific environments where Indigenous peoples live. And that knowledge is becoming more and more important as we see the impact, the negative impact on the planet itself with some of the destructive practices that have been going on, especially the last 150 years.
0: So how many Indigenous languages are still left? there in in North America?
1: Well, we have over 150 indigenous languages that are still spoken. But unfortunately, in three out of four of those language communities, as I say, North America, meaning north of Mexico, what's now the United States and Canada, um, but three out of four of those languages are only spoken by the World War II generation, that greatest generation born in the 1920s. And fought in uh, World War II. And so that means that, you know, we have very few of these people still with us and for most of our tribal nations.
0: So you're here in Australia and you've been here to teach us about the techniques you've been using to keep languages alive in America. Tell us about this master apprentice technique you've been using.
1: Well, the beauty of the master apprentice technique is specifically that It breaks out of the common assumption that you have to have a classroom, you have to have an elaborate curriculum with published books, you have to have all of this infrastructure in order to teach and pass forward your language. What the Master Apprentice Program does is essentially turn around the classroom model so that instead of giving a little bit of language to a lot of students, I don't know if some of our listeners have studied Spanish or French in high school or perhaps in college. Mm. It's very unlikely that you're actually fluent in the language mm. <laughs> from the process. I'm not trying to uh, spotlight on anyone. Or the, but I think that's the common pattern. So instead of a little bit of language to a lot of people, this is a, a beautiful uh, process, the Master Apprentice Program, that turns that process The other way around. And instead of a little bit of language to a lot of students, instead, it gets a lot of language to just a handful of students so that the apprentices working with the master speakers, the elders who are knowledgeable in the history, in the traditions, in the medicines, in the ceremonies, in the songs, become the direct hands-on teachers for the apprentices so that they then can carry that knowledge forward. The goal is not to get a smattering of language to a lot of people, but to get the fullness of the heritage into a few apprentices who themselves can then become the cultural bearers to carry that language forward to the next generations.
0: And so in those master-apprentice relationships where you are giving a really in-depth and a deep level of knowledge about the language to someone, what are the techniques you're using to teach them language
1: in that really in-depth way? Well, I think the most critical thing is to do it in a spirit of love, to do it in an attitude of uh, enjoyment and laughter. <laughs> you know, that's our traditional way. The main process is, in effect, to... Uh, live your life in the language so that it can begin with simple things like if you go to visit the elder master speaker in her home, for example, and the dishes are dirty and they need to be washed. Well, that becomes a master apprentice routine. You know how to wash dishes, but do you know how to do it in your language? Do you know the motions the action so the focus is on the action words not just naming things and the goal is to just live in the language so that you begin with simple everyday things and pick up that language you don't write it down it's not a book process it's literally as a child hearing the language and using it and absorbing it but you're trying to not only hear it and uh listen but you're actually enacting it your your body is moving to uh implement the the words and the actions that go together in the language
0: well that's how we learn languages in real life normally isn't it as as babies and children we we live in that language and we pick it up from what we're doing at the time and and by you know the things we do in in day-to-day life i guess the challenge with that is it takes a long time, you know, babies take several years. And I, I imagine the the more Western approach of doing it in the classroom when you're trying to learn a language later in life is is meant to be faster, but it doesn't necessarily give you the depth. Um, I imagine the technique you're talking about is very time intensive and takes many
1: years. Well, I guess at some level, because of the richness of our Indigenous Languages, all the history and knowledge, uh, the songs, the ceremonies, all of the things that are connected to our language, knowledge about stars. We're talking about story traditions that go back millennia. (laughs) You know, there's a a great deal to learn, of course. So, uh, in some ways, it is a lifelong learning. But in terms of becoming fluent, if you follow this kind of approach, if you apply yourself, you can become pretty good in a couple of years. So this is a process that focuses on growing new speakers, breath to breath, face to face in the community setting.
0: That was Dr. Richard Grounds, who's the executive director of the Yuchi Language Project in Oklahoma. To find out how Richard's message has been going down with locals here, we're joined by Leon Yatman. He's the CEO of the Bachelor Institute in the Northern Territory. Leon, thanks for joining us. How has this American approach to strengthening language been going
3: down in Alice Springs? I suppose the feeling has been quite positive. Um, we we have a very um, broad mix of uh, participants, um, as as we put it, it's the masters and apprentices. So we've got some very uh, fluent speakers who are obviously quite elderly, uh, and then we've got a mix of age ranges, which you know provide a, a pretty rich and diverse group. Coming together, clearly the elders with their energy around what they've got in their in, in their heads and in their hearts, and, and then the young people who have been um, working with uh, those elders, mainly family members who who are really close contacts, are really um, having those regular conversations, and um, some slightly younger younger people who are again in that same same category and, and playing quite positively.
0: And so, how much help do you think this approach can be? And in some communities, are we already using that approach, where you know people are living the language on a daily basis, so that they have that true,
3: deep understanding? I think positively. This is a, a positive reminder that as Indigenous peoples, we've got systems that work. The opportunity to get our friends from America coming across that they effectively encounter the same challenges we have. Um, so the similarities join on quite a number of points. And I think there's a validation aspect to mm. this whole process that, you know, mobs that are, that have got some strength, it's keeping their energy surfacing at the right level. But you don't forget, there's actually quite a number of other um, languages across this country of ours that, are teetering on extinction, I think we need to acknowledge that in the vast majority of, of Australia, you know, the dominant language isn't the local tongue. Um, how many non-Indigenous speakers, you know, are actually speaking Aranda? you know, uh, are actually speaking uh, the languages from the Torres Straits or Palawa down in, in Tasmania? You know, that, that's a reflection of what, what sort of action is required from us in this country for you know, keeping out th- those identities, you know, alive. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, and then to come back to where we started this conversation, you're, you're bringing American ideas into this conference and their approach to saving
3: languages. Do you see that as a really good thing? It's an, an American indigenous ideas. I think that's mm. the difference. I mean, the commercial side is is all sugar loaded, sugar coated, and you know, it's it's full of other stuff and. What we're connecting with is, you know, the, the real values about the elder structure and community, the possibilities that we can regenerate by applying, and, and it's not using their language, it's our own language, but applying these strategies and, and offering some support to, especially those apprentices who are, you know, highly likely to be the next next master's through this process and, and offering them that support so that you know, they can continue to apply their trade. I think there needs to be not so much just protection, but there's gotta be afforded some support to, you know, processes and programs, which belong to the mob, belong to our families. And again, promote the the positivity about being an Arunda man or a Torres Strait Islander or a Noongar or a Palawa. We, we, We actually need that there because that makes this great country great.
0: That's Leon Yateman, who originally comes from Yarrabah, near Cairns. And this decade, starting this year, is the UN's International Decade of Indigenous Languages. So there's a global effort to draw attention to the critical situation facing many Indigenous languages and to try and turn that situation around. All right, that is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Tomorrow in your feed, the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you speaking to this week?
4: This weekend, I am chatting to Ezzy Yoda Magbagor, who is playing in the FIBA Women's Basketball World Cup coming up in Sydney in just a few weeks, about a month from today. Ezzy is just 23 years old and has already been described as the next Lauren Jackson. She is such an interesting person to chat to. She's an ambassador for the World Cup that's coming up. She's clearly a quite a quiet and reserved person, but the way she's managed to stay grounded during what is clearly been a meteoric rise in the basketball world is quite. Impressive, I've got to say. She was part of the Seattle Storms championship winning team in her rookie season. She's currently playing in the WNBA. And as someone who firmly believes our country doesn't pay enough attention to women's sport, I think it is high time everyone listened to this chat and was introduced to Ezi Yoda, Magbergore.
0: Yeah, 100%. She sounds incredible and, you know, Liz Cambage and some of the other women who've played in the WNBA, it's just an extraordinary journey they've been on. And a big thank you to the hardworking team here at the briefing that make this podcast possible. Executive producer Dan Mullins, producers Eleanor Harrison Dengate, Brooke Lowther, our socials team Sarah Bowl and Poppy Manzi, and our editor Matt Kuz Curry. Listener.